Welcome to Heart Talk. I'm your host, writer, educator, and creator, Tracy Michelle. Anytime a writer takes the courageous step to tell a story, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it's a revolutionary act. It's an act of exposure. For writers of color, I think this is especially true. If we consider revolution to be about overhauling a culture or society or overturning the systems that hinder a culture or society from working at its best and most humane, then who does that better than the scribes who feel led to chronicle our stories? Writers have the capacity to expose the nuances and complexities of a culture and its people, good and bad, and shift how that group is seen and maybe more significantly how that group sees itself. So much of the early work of Black writers had a revolutionary perspective. The issues of the day were laced as commentary into the creative work. And that's certainly changed some, right? And maybe that's a good thing. There has always been this notion that black writing, particularly here in America, had to solely reflect and comment on the social issues and injustice of the day. If we look at the writing of the Harlem Renaissance, say, and even decades later in the black arts movement, that was definitely true. We're clear what Langston Hughes is talking about in I Too Am America. But I think what's interesting about these periods is that they were also there were also writers across the diaspora telling the other stories of our lives. This is especially um, true when we think about that there's always seemed to be a desire by some black writers to tell the stories that exist outside of our social positions. Stories where the narrative is less about commenting on political or social challenges directly and more about illuminating our humanity within the white supremacist power structures and institutions. But when I consider this, I really realize that that too is also revolutionary, right? To tell a quote unquote ordinary story about a little black girl doing cartwheels in a park is, and maybe sadly, revolutionary. To tell the story about a black man who falls in love and loses said love and then falls in love again and to tell it with no agenda, with no apparent consciousness of the white gaze, as Toni Morrison um, had talked about, um, with no firm commitment to the pathologies of the hour, it is all revolutionary. And so I think there are some who have done or that currently do both well. And there's certainly social commentary that can be gleaned from, say, someone like Nella Larson's story, um, Passing. But at its core, that story is actually about the complexities of a relationship between two women. Newsflash, Black people have families and jobs and romantic interests and hobbies and challenges. And yes, we have all of this within systems not designed for us. And yet we still exist. We live and love and we die. Those institutions and structures don't have to be in the forefront of the stories we tell. It's okay if they are, but they don't have to be. Unfortunately, the issue that most, I think, Black writers and storytellers face is, um, especially those of us who aspire to do this for a living, is that we must contend with 
the fact that, um, or even reconcile that the work that we want to do in the way that we want to do it is going to be received a particular way. And so this begs the question of whether we can ever really truly be rid of the white gaze. Black stories and literature will always be critiqued through the lens of wherever black people exist in society in that moment, even by us. I mean, we could go, you know, and talk about um, Alice Walker's treatment of black men in The Color Purple and how it was critiqued so heavily when the book was released and then later when the film was released. Because people couldn't see it as one story told by one author, but as an indictment of all black men, right? Um, And yet Alice Walker was just telling the story that she felt led to tell. The elders in my family certainly were storytellers. I mean, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and I used to sit and watch my aunts and uncles play spades or piquino, and they would tell the tallest of tales, okay? <laughs> my nanny, my great-grandmother, um, used to talk about growing up in Alabama, and every time she'd tell the story, a little bit of it would change, which was always the incentive, for me at least, to listen. And that's just it, right? Storytelling is revolutionary no matter or maybe even despite the form it takes or the way it's received. It moves us all. Once a piece is released into the wild, we can't always determine what kind of moves will be made or the noise the work will make. That's out of the writer's control, at least. But like the stories told by the old griots in the oral traditions, once it's out there, it takes a life of its own. It transforms itself in the mind of the reader or the listener. I guess that's why I am fascinated by digital storytelling and the opportunity I think it affords for people of color, black writers and storytellers in particular, is certainly not without critique, of course, but in many ways, it replicates what is familiar about traditional storytelling. Facebook and Twitter allow for a kind of call and response, right? Internet memes use humor and satire to make a point, whether you agree with that point or not. YouTube allows for stories to be told and retold and shared and reshared. There's a link there, I think. And sometimes the revolution, I think, is not so grand. It's more personal. So for me, the process of writing, of storytelling can be cathartic. Um, I believe storytelling has the power to heal us. That's the whole point of this podcast, right? And even interpersonally, stories are the drivers of movements. If you look at the Me Too movement, um, it's, you know, stories are the literal Me Too sis or Me Too brother. Um, it's that that's embedded in stories that resonates with us. And that's why it's so powerful. It's almost the seed of courage. So in today's episode, I get a chance to talk to the super fabulous Alexis Roan. Alexis um, is a writer, producer, artistic theologian, and one of those revolutionary artists I just finished talking about. Um, She's devoted to candidly exploring the power of story through fiction, story slams, and page-to-stage productions. Um, She's been in this game for a minute. She's had over 20 years experience um, doing this for the private corporate sector, customizing workshops and branded events and coaching um, also creative and true first person storytelling events. So uh, let's dive in and let's talk to Alexis Roan. Thank you so much for uh, joining us at Heart Talk. Yeah. Uh, you know, I love you, Alexis. I'm so so proud of you and um, the way that uh, you are not asking permission. Like, look, this is what needs to happen. This is the conversation that needs to be added to the public discourse. 
Yes, yes. So that's, that's what I'm trying. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to do. So you know how we roll at Heart Talk. How's your heart today? Oh, my God. Um, whew, uh, my heart is full. Uh, I am um, uh, this year, uh, and actually since I've moved to Raleigh, I'm, you know, recent transplant to Raleigh. I've been here now uh, six months. In fact, it's actually a year to this, uh, a year to the day that I did my house hunting trip. Mm. Um, when I, you know, before I moved out here. Um, but in 2020, and actually since I've moved to Raleigh, my vision has been to not play small. Mm. And so I met the new mayor. Mm. I met a couple of members of the new council, uh, uh, city council. And um, on, uh, it was either December 31st or January 1st, 2020. I was at uh, the Museum of Arts. I do a morning hike, a sunrise walk around there. And they have an amphitheater. I was at the amphitheater either on the last day of the old year or the first day of the new year. And I recorded a one minute video saying, I'm going to produce a, 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 a community event on this stage with their budget. Like I'm going to do this. And, um, and when I recorded it, I was like, oh snap, I got to get this done now. And uh, so I received, um, several emails from their, like the, the, the community engagement directors and um, general managers or whatever. I had pitched a concept, a tribute to black movie soundtracks mm. and every one of them jumped on it. They all emailing me. And one person who's leaving, she was like, can I get added to your distribution list? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh my and goodness. So Ooh, what's, you got to tell us what's on your list too. Of soundtracks. Yep. Go keep oh, talking. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Oh my goodness. Now I'm like, oh God, that's gonna be so that's gonna be so so amazing. But um, you know, I, I heard from the mayor on Sunday night, uh, and I've been hearing from um the art council or the, the art administrators like since Friday, uh Friday through last night. They're still like emailing me. So we have a meeting confirmed for next week. Nice. Um my heart is also full because my very first live events. Uh, live event here in Raleigh, Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine, sold out like three weeks before the actual event. Wow. <laughs> Which was really amazing because anyone who produces live events, you know, you know how if we still have a few tickets left, like up to the last minute, we're like, hey, y'all, still come out. Like there's room, there's, there's room, there's room, there's room. And I was like, oh, wait. You ain't got no room. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't know kind of what the, the flavor was going to, I didn't know if people would be receptive. Uh, to Jesus Jazz and Dessert Wine, A Night of Faith and Adult Storytelling, because they always describe this region as the, quote, Bible Belt. And so if you don't do Jesus in a particular way, then they're like, you know, they're not going right. to do it. But what I'm finding is that there are people who are hungry for authenticity. There are people who are hungry for spaces to just say, this is what I feel. Um, I don't know um, all of the ways in which I've grown up, like having Jesus' image. They're open to, like... Um, what does God look like in a, you know, in an adult and a developed context? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I know that I am loved, but how do I make sense of uh, this divorce from this Christian minister? Um, mm. How do I make, how do I make sense of um, the illness that, uh, you know, this, this person who, you know, vegetarian, healthy, um, you know, mindset, like where's the sickness coming from? How do I make sense of the fact that I have been faithful in giving and I still ain't got no money? <laughs> yeah, so all, you know, so there are people who are like really hungry for just open discussions and I'm not going to be poking at anybody's ideology. What I'm going to do or what I'm doing is I'm curating a night 
of adult storytelling. And I let people who may not feel, um, who may not feel safe for an environment outside of one that's safe for a seven-year-old. They're like, yo, I, you know, I can't be where my, <laughs> where my seven-year-old grandchild or child is. And I'm like, bless y'all hearts. Y'all know they only going to be seven for like a year, right? Right. So, <laughs> I don't know if anybody told them that, but you know, so that's the thing. Um, so my heart is full because um, I am uh, watching the manifestation of the Psalm, uh, the, the blessing that I pray over my life, which is Psalm one, uh, that everything my hands touch, you know, they prosper. And I'm, I'm watching that materialize. And so uh, today my heart is full and I'm having this conversation with my girl. So you know. <laughs> now, you it's know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, legs, I think I met you in 2003. So like, wow, 17, mm-hmm. 17 years in ago. LA. Yep. Right. In LA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, my love for you is like beyond like, for real. Oh, um, and God. I think, I don't know. I think what's amazing about you, and I think at your core, is you always seem to me to be a seeker, right? Mm-hmm. As someone mm-hmm. who's, um, mm-hmm. and you're also someone who is open to like the stories of the world. It's no surprise absolutely. that you do storytelling, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, right, right. But even more important than that, I think you're a person who's, who is, who's where my story is safe, mm-hmm. right? Like I feel like the people are drawn to you because they realize that when they share their hearts, when they share, share their stories, um, you're safe. I remember one year at book expo of America. I don't know if it was Chicago or New York. I don't know where we were, but you had all of us quoting Og Mandino. Do you remember that? (laughs) The 10, uh, 10 prince, uh, 10 secrets, uh, 10 principles of the greatest salesman of the world. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. and we were all quoted. I went home. I had Og Mandino in my spirit, okay? And that's just kind of like the energy you give off. And I that think was New York. That was, that was New, New York. York. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think your gift of storytelling and also facilitating other storytellers comes yeah. out of that kind of seeking, yeah. kind of always, you know, gathering knowledge. And so yeah. recently you came to Philadelphia and did a storytelling workshop for New Season Books. And you told a story that I want you to tell the Heart Talk listeners now about um, truth and storytelling. Yeah, so yeah. like an allegory. So go yeah, ahead and share yeah. it with us. So I actually, I, so I learned this story um, during uh, a workshop that I was taking when I had planned to uh, teach at a storytelling institute in Arizona. So of course I ended up uh, relocating um, out from the West Coast and Southwest. So I wasn't able to do it, but um, I, I tell stories, I tell concrete stories, I tell um, true first person narratives. But this workshop was really all about allegories and fables. And that's not really my thing, except I did find what I call my signature story. And uh, I feel like it, it, it's so, it, it really encapsulates everything that I have um, done as a, uh, a storyteller and a person who was like, really, um, I love the truth. And so that the, the fable is this, uh, truth was walking through the village and uh, when Truth would walk through the village, all of the mothers would grab their children, uh, rush them into the house, cover their ears. The old men would uh, scoff and uh, the young men would point and laugh. This happened every time Truth walked through the village. Uh, and so one day Truth decided, that's it. I'm not going back into the village. These people aren't hearing me. While Truth is in the woods, Truth meets story. And Together, they re-enter the village and suddenly everyone is crowding around. Uh, They're ready to hear him. Well, why now? Because with truth dressed in story, everyone made it palatable. No one likes a naked truth. Mm -hmm. 
I realized that I had been um, a person who was very comfortable and who is comfortable with a naked truth. My first book was called Premature Pleasures. Come on now. Right. So like, I have no problems with, um, you know, being straight, no chaser. What I found is that everyone is not as comfortable with that. And so the most palatable way to dress truth is in a story, mm. which is why my practice is called Truth Meets Story, LLC. Right. <laughs> Expanding empathy one story at a time. I love it. I love it. So, I mean, in light of that, and that being sort of your mantra, your, you know, the basis of your work, um, and then that living alongside this, what I call this live out loud Lexus, right? <laughs> this, this, you're in the season, you just said it where, you know, you've, you know, dreamt and prayed big things, yep. right? And so I'm just curious, was there a specific experience in your life that kind of shifted that, kind of created this new mission? I don't know how new it is, but this, yeah. this new perspective, I guess. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting because it, um, Gosh, it's not been new, but it, um, it's been refined. I guess that's, that's what continues to happen is the, the more I practice it, it just gets refined. But the, um, the catalyst for me sort of um, shifting my whole life's mission. Now, mind you, um, I, had, uh, I have a degree in journalism with an emphasis in public relations. And when I graduated from the University of Texas at Austin in uh, 1992, what I really wanted was to... Um, have a thriving career in corporate America. And I was doing that. Um, all of the promotions that I sought, um, you know, I was getting. And uh, finally, about eight, years out, uh, about eight years out of college, I got an offer to join the ranks of like the premier company, like my dream organization. And um, this happened because I was kind of out and about, you know, in the community, I was building a solid reputation as an HR professional. And I happened to get on the radar of uh, the recruiting director or the, the HR director for this, uh, like this, this uh, premier organization. And um, I really thought that I had hit the corporate jackpot when on January 3rd, 2000, I walked into the hallowed halls, marble floors, floor to ceiling windows, this very posh and opulent, um, corporate headquarters for Enron North America. Oh. I was convinced that my life and everything I said I was going to do in the corporate arena was about to for real, for real launch because I was going to be able to have them on my resume. Now they were always known for uh, recruiting the best of the best. And uh, they also for the past like four years straight had been, um, I had been uh, voted by Forbes magazine as the most innovative company in America. And so when I pull into the employee parking garage, uh, my little uh, red convertible uh, Mustang was flanked by a dozen silver Porsches. So everything that Enron was doing, <laughs> they was doing on the whole next level. So my little Ford convertible Mustang, I felt quite dwarfed. And like, okay, I'm gonna have to raise my, I'm gonna have to raise my game, I have to raise my game. Um, so I walk in there, first day, um, waiting in the elevator bank. Um, the only decoration they have is the, the Cricket E logo. That's the only decoration in, in all of the lobby. Get on the elevator, um, follow the crowd onto the elevator. Um, and as the crowd is like, as people are getting off at their various floors, um, the elevator is thinning. 
and I'm able to finally read this plaque that was on the wall. And it was a plaque with Enron's four core values, two of which were ethics and integrity. <laughs> I get off the elevator at the 27th floor and I walk into the HR department. Um, it's going to be one of those senior recruiters. I walk into the HR department and I'm um, blocked by one of my new coworkers. And uh, he says, um, your name is Alexis, right? It's like, yeah. And he's like, you're just coming over from it. And he names the investment firm. I just, you know, left um, to join Enron. It's like, yeah. And he said, um, I'm going to test your value as a recruiter. And then he says, did you bring the employee directory from your previous employer? And I said, no, because the directory was online. And he thought about it and then he moves out of the way and I continue walking down the, um, the hallway. But then I'm also thinking, and that's like, proprietary information that would be like theft. I kid you not, I turn the corner to my right is a library of employee directories that other recruiters had brought over from their previous employer. This was a situation where they didn't even have it under lock and key. There was a password or nothing. It was a library. So anytime a recruiter needed to fill a job, all they needed to do was to go to the library um, pull out the directory. They can find the name, person's name, their email address, their phone number, their title, and call them and say, hey, I have this opportunity at Enron if you'd like to be considered for it. That was the first day. What? Ethics and integrity, right? So now I'm uh, surrounded by silver Porsches uh, and a plaque that says ethics and integrity, and now I have this evidence. And so what was interesting for me was I had to decide whose report was I going to believe. Would I believe the report of Silver Porsches? Would I believe the report of the, um, the sister who was uh, currently working like a year rotation uh, as head of HR? And uh, she had been recruited from an investment firm in New York. And uh, the CEO, Ken Lay, had recruited her and had said, um, we're going to put you in, like, in the executive suite. But first, we need you to do a tour of HR um, so you can see how the organization runs. And so she was like, oh, okay, in a year or so, I'm going to be good. I'm being the executive suite. Okay. That's one story. The other person was um, a beautiful woman who was in their marketing department, I believe. And she had dreams of being a broadcast journalist, but she had gotten recruited early and uh, she had settled for what she called velvet handcuffs. Mm. Um, that had like, she was like, I'm, I got a secure career here. I got a strong portfolio. I have a great, like, all of my bonuses and stuff, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting pretty and I can retire, you know, in three to five years if I want to. Wow. That was one story, but she wanted security. That's what Enron gave her. The third person was a secretary who often bragged about her $1.5 million retirement portfolio that she was able to amass after 25 years with Enron, somewhere 23, 25 years with Enron. And what she had done was taken all of her corporate bonuses all of her employee bonuses and reinvested them by buying Enron stock. <laughs> all of that was by 2000. So I had three stories plus the silver Porsches, but I also had the fact that for me, ethics and integrity are more than 15 letters on a plaque. Which report would I believe? So it was in that season where I was having to decide now that I have reached my quote pinnacle, like the organization that everybody wants to work for, I now have them on my resume. I'm seeing some things and now I have to decide, am I going to play this game or am I going to decide that my life is bigger? I don't even know how big it is, but I do know that I have a desire to um, 
to live freely. Um, Pippi Longstocking is my uh, sort of um, the person that I go to, like from the... <laughs> Pippi Longstocking. <laughs> no, but look, she didn't care about conventions. She didn't care about hair. But somehow she was able to travel the world having all of these adventures. And she had this gold, this chest full of gold coins. And I'm currently like adding, you know, coins to my empty gold chest. So that's the, the next thing. But I'm free. Like that's always been sort of my doppelganger, like the, the liberty, the freedom and the courage that Pippi Longstocking lived and the wild hair. Like, you know, <laughs> the, um, you know, that's that's been a thing for me. Enron, January 2000 was the shift for me. And I only worked there for five months because I knew that. Uh, the way that I imaged God, the way that I understood uh, God to be sovereign, um, that God doesn't have an equal. There's mm. no match. There is the sovereignty of God, and then there's the rest. <laughs> right. And the so rest. anytime, you know, uh, anyone tried to elevate themselves, saying, hey, the secretary has $1.5 million portfolio, the secretary. Mm -hmm. Hey, all them silver portions, hey, you are, you, you're with us. Come on, play ball, Right. Um, I decided that uh, 15 letters on the plat were, um, they're, they're more than, um, they're more than, than words. Right. Those are more than letters. Like that is um, the way that I chose to do life. Now, when they, what I realized was that um, a year later, when Enron toppled, it was like a year and a few months after I left that, you know, game was over. Um, I often thought about those three women, the HR exec who left, an, who left a you know, stable um, left a stable uh, investment firm in New York, uh, the woman who forsook her dream for what she thought was security, and the secretary who for 25 years, instead of taking cash bonuses, she gave the money back to Enron. <laughs> Lord have mercy. I thought a lot about them and I thought, what was it, when did they also have the same opportunity to pivot? And what, like, what did they see? that was sort of like a, a check in their spirit. Mm. Like, mm. Cause I didn't have access to like the, the financial records. And even if I did, I don't know if I know how to read them. Like I, all of the things that caused them to topple were things that I would not have had access to. The only thing I had access to was you said that two of your four core values is ethics and integrity. And on my first day, I see um, where you have um, stolen property. Right. Wide open. Wow. That, that meant something to me. And um, so I have been nurtured. So that was my pivot. And I have been nurtured every time I have remembered that there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. Um, but I am reminded uh, that I know enough to say that, you know, God is sovereign and, God, and the Lord sees me, the Lord's got me. And so I'm going to always uh, consistently daily go back to that anchor and trust that I like I'm, I'm covered. So let's, so let's talk about those three stories, right? Those yes. three, three people. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes we can get caught up in the narrative, right? Yes. Like we have, a, we have a story that we tell ourselves. And I can imagine, you know, the HR person saying, you know, this is what you do. Like, this is how you climb the corporate ladder. You leave yes. one, you go to the other. And sometimes, mm -hmm. I actually remember someone telling me, sometimes you have to do bad stuff in order to, <laughs> <laughs> in order to be where you want to be or to yes. be successful. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so why do you think that people get caught up in those narratives as, as opposed to truth? Because what you're telling me is you, you knew a greater truth inside of yourself, right? Oh, you right. understood something that was greater than the narrative, oh, girl, you about to, you know, blow up. You're about, you're yeah. going to get you a portion 
X amount right. of years, right? Exactly. So why right. why do you think people get stuck there? Why do you think we get yeah. caught up in that? Well, and again, um, they actually um, chose, um, when Jesus tells a story about you can't serve God and mammon, they chose mammon. Each one of those stories were about um, them deciding that the money was where they wanted to follow. So the HR exec was like, yo, I got, I'm going to be in that executive suite and that brings money. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the marketing person, she forsook the um, unknown aspect of pursuing her dreams because Enron gave her money. The administrative assistant chose money and all of them and even the marketing person when she described it as velvet handcuffs uh, my whole the, the the first company that I formed was called unshackled publishing and it was because when I left Enron uh, it was uh, me being unshackled from velvet handcuffs and it has been my desire to never again be shackled by the conveniences of what I see uh, money that comes that does not allow you to sleep well at night but doesn't that mean that you you're you had a different sense of your value, right? Because I think of people who put money, mammon, as the end all, be all. Oftentimes, it's because they see no value in any other aspect of them. So, like their worth is tied into how much money they make, right? And so, I'm wondering if I don't know. I'm wondering if because you saw a different purpose, a different value, you you could distinguish that money is not everything. Well, here's what I, you know, and I don't know if at the time I could say that money is not, that money was not everything. And even now um, with, you know, me again, like actively adding to my, <laughs> to my chest, uh, my empty chest, what I'm, I'm like, I'm, it's meant for my gold coins and I'm actively pursuing them. Um, too often the, um, the immediacy of, of car notes, of mortgages, of, um, messages that say, how much do you have retired, you know, reserved for retirement? When are you planning to retire? What's that planning like? The fact that all of that is a literal thing, it becomes you having to choose like your present, your need to like um, see your provision as opposed to leaning into what you can't see and saying, I don't understand what all of this means, but this thing I'm going to to do. I'm going to, uh, to trust that everything is going to work out for me or, or what have you. So I understood, um, I understood their immediacy. Uh, I was afraid to model the same thing. Um, so I don't know that I was operating as some super believer. I don't know that I was even consciously saying, God, I trust you over money because be clear. I had a car note and I ain't had a car note since then. I've been very careful to say, if I'm gonna live like people long stock and I can't be, um, uh, you know, confined to the conventions of like the, the, the financial uh, system that says, Hey, you know, we can come and take your car. If you don't pay that note, you know, we can come and do this out of the other. So I only drive uh, cash cars and also I only drive Toyota Avalons because they've <laughs> they're like proven. Right, right, right. So I, you know, so I, so I found my, I, so I found my husband my has a Toyota so, Avalon, so I'm, I'm with that. You, I'm telling you, like all of that. Like I love, love, love Toyotas and I certainly love the Avalon. I have found my signature car at least at this current stage of my life um so they you know they had they had mortgages i had a mortgage they had uh, car notes i had a car note um 
I also just didn't, um, I could not ignore that, um, God, are you sovereign? Do you negotiate your power? You know, is it possible for both the, like for all of this to be okay? Um, how do we work that? Um, I was asking those kinds of questions, whereas others had just decided, look, you asked, <laughs> stop asking all them damn questions and just, <laughs> Right. Just, get with the pro, just get with the program already. Come on with the rest of us. Like we've already decided that our car notes and our mortgages are more important than our integrity. And um, I could not see um, that being a thing. I just, um, I, 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 I couldn't see it. And, but remember the original question was what was the pivot? So the other part of that was um, because I had thought that this was my pinnacle and that I'd be able to go out and to, you know, to write my, you know, write, uh, basically write my ticket. I could design my corporate life however I wanted to because now I had Enron uh, on, on, on tab. Um, if I can write my own life, why am I only writing it within, a corporate, uh, within the corporate structure? Mm. That was a big, big deal for me. What does a bigger life look like? Uh, mm. What were my childhood um, uh, ambitions, which led me to Pippi Long's <laughs> led me to Pippi Longstock and I never had um, fantasies about Cinderella or Snow White or you know any of these you know polished women um, or even African princesses that was never my thing I was very much connected to the white girl with the red plaits and the boots and the fact that she was just untethered from conventions and living her best life at it and pulling other people into that space and she was rich. I got to remember that too. She had a, she traveled with a, a chest full of gold coins and a raggedy horse. <laughs> so, but uh, all, just all of the ways in which she just didn't. And so all of that happened when I decided that, wait, I had been only limiting my, uh, my constructs of my life based on what it could look like within the corporate arena and not looking at a bigger life mm-hmm. and what that could do. So that's, but, but Enron was where it all started. And I mean, you just said it, you know, Pippi uh, took a lot of people with her. And I think you produced a number yeah. of live storytelling events. Um, and so you take a lot of people. I, I'm one of those people. Like you take a lot of people on the journey with yeah. you. So I'd love for you to just, as we kind of wrap this up, what, what, why is it important for people to tell, tell their stories out loud? Like what have you observed in these storytelling events that, you know, transformation changes in people when they finally give their stories air? When they finally give their stories air, um, they see that number one, they are not the only one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that becomes this um, kind of a lie that's perpetuated that keeps us bound in really bad spaces. And we think, oh my God, I'm the only one. I got to keep it hidden. Um, so when they share that story and they're affirmed like, oh my God, I'm not the only one. That's one experience. But the other thing that happens, and this has been um, what I just call a holy mystery because I don't have, um, I don't have good answers. I only have uh, that it has been the experience time and time again. When I curate a night of live storytelling, and again, my preference is um, adult storytelling, um, people with a developed context, people who can handle um, deep questions uh, about where people have lived their lives, you know, there is something very rich that happens in that space when people are thinking, wow, you should be, shouldn't you be ashamed of that? Well, when you follow like um, conventional norms, 
that tell you, oh my God, be ashamed, put your mask on, like color your mask, decorate your mask, um, versus someone who says, you know, I'm going to take off my mask and I'm going to let my skin breathe and I'm going to let the story have air. Um, when you do that, you give permission for others to take off their mask, uh, which are heavy and uncomfortable and you're sweating and, mm-hmm. you know, just take that mask off and, and let your natural um, essence and aura breathe because in that, um, that natural space, God has been present. We've been so um, afraid of a, wild, uh, a wildness of God that we only permit God to operate within these um, uh, these pre-constricted uh, stories that make us feel safe. And as long as we're constantly rehashing that, then allegedly we're supposed to feel safe until somebody finally raises their hand and say, okay, that's not how it happened for me. Right. That doesn't feel safe. That's not even, you know, the truth of it. So having someone step to the mic and say me first, okay, I'll go first and I'll tell you what happened. It just liberates the whole room. Now, whether that whole room ever steps to the mic and tells their story, it's not even the point. The point is that they come into this space, um, they, they, they open themselves up to someone else's lived reality, someone else's experience. They listen with um, a gracious spirit. And, and then um, they go out just contagious mm-hmm. with this, this, this holy mystery. It's really, it's empathy. It's, and it's organic. It's not contrived. It's not me, you know, forcing you to do anything but to be open and me promoting the events in such a way that the right people, the people who can handle it, show up. The people who feel like it's too scary. Okay. Stay your scared behind at home. <laughs> this is for people like that, that can handle this level of truth because it's so important. And, um, and I, I, you know, I, I daily pray the, the names of God. And one of the names I pray is Jehovah Shema. The Lord is present. The Lord goes ahead of me. And so that is what I believe happens with each event. I invite the Lord to go ahead of me and to know everyone that's going to be in that space and every story that will be spoken. Um, I have curated, I have coached and I have trusted that, you know, I'm creating a safe space for all, for this holy mystery to just, um, to dwell and for no one to be able to contain it, uh, to just lean into the wildness and, uh, and to, uh, to trust that, um, it's all working out. Mm-hmm. It's all working out. And, you know, I imagine when you talk about when people leave there and it's contagious, um, the image that comes to mind, you know, if I'm visualizing that, it's just open. Like, yeah. I imagine people are just open when they leave. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's, there's freedom. There's absolutely. Freedom. Um, there's and, definitely freedom in it. And, and, and that's what I want. Um, I want my life to be about... Um, what I believe the good works that prepared in advance for me to do are all about me partnering with God and healing the world, using my gifts. My gift is story. My gift is memory. Uh, And, um, you know, by the grace of God, I also have no interest in being the solo storyteller. Like I'm not trying to um, build a platform where it is like exclusively stories by Alexis. Uh, My brand is the expansion of empathy one story at a time with me fully understanding that I can't tell all the stories. Um, I do want to be a part of the selection of the stories that I curate because 
I think that too much time is given to like vitriolic voices, people who are intentionally divisive, people with an agenda, um, people who are trying to sell something to you, people who are trying to make you feel bad or, you know, whatever. Um, that's not what I am. This weekend, I had a wonderful workshop and one of my breakout stars was a woman who, of course, and, and um, God, too, this, I've never had a man come in saying I don't have an important story. <laughs> That's something that women normally come into the workshop saying. So she came in saying my story isn't exciting. She ends up being the breakout storyteller for that, that workshop. Mm. And it was, uh, she trusted um, herself to be vulnerable, uh, to share a story about being a caregiver uh, for her um, sister for 30 years. And um, when her sister passed, her feeling like she may not have done enough. Mm. And everyone in that room who had ever watched a loved one get you know, sick and, and pass uh, or watch a loved one have to be responsible for caring for a loved one, we all were just feeling the energy that she was putting off. And even when she said, I don't know if I did enough. Now, this is after she had told us all these things that she'd done. It's just so rich to see her admit, I don't know that I did enough. And then having the audience dial like a, um, a plug in and say, hey, you, you did a lot. Right, right. You did a lot. Be, be gracious with yourself. When we keep our stories to ourselves and in our minds or allow, you know, the more fancier or the more exciting stories to take the mic, we forget about um, how some of these very simple and difficult you know, lived realities, have so much beauty, so much charm, so much encouragement. While we're telling her to be gracious with ourselves, we are all, be gracious with herself, we're also having to look and to see um, where we are not gracious with ourselves. And, uh, and so it just, it, it, you know, and again, all I'm doing is teaching you how to tell a story and telling you, I'm coaching you to uh, be able to tell a story on one of my live storytelling nights. So I always tell everybody this ain't just an exercise in like, Oh, you got a new skill. It was like, I'm listening. I'm recording. Mm -hmm. I'm taking notes. I know exactly what I'm up. I know exactly what I'm about, what I'm trying to do. The Lord is with me and bless your heart. I'm gonna call you and be like, Hey fam, you up. <laughs> <laughs> you ready? I let, but oh. I let them know like very, like at the, at the top of the workshop that that's what's going to happen. So, yeah, I love you, girl. I love you more. Thank and you. I, I thank you so much. I thank you for the gift that is Alexis Grace. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, I am excited to see um, what all the things that 2020 has for you, because the vision yes. is clear. OK. Oh, my God. The vision is clear. It is clear. It is clear. I like I am saturated. Uh, in, saturated. In my, I love yeah, that. Yeah, yes. yeah, I'm saturated. Yeah, yes. yeah. Thank you. Thank you, beloved. I love you so much. Thanks. I, lo I love you too. Heart Talk is written and produced by my mommy, Tracy Michelle Lewis Jiggins, for Heart Space and New Season Books and Media. Go to hearttalkpodcast.com to learn more. See you next time.